You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions, and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Renee Williams, Executive Director for the National Center for Victims of Crime in Washington, D.C. Renee, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Now, tell us a little bit about the organization. What's your 30-second elevator pitch for the, again, I'm going to say it right, the National Center for Victims of Crime? You got it. It is a mouthful. Our elevator pitch is a little bit easier. Our mission is really to meet victims at the genesis of their victimization and at every single point afterwards to help them on their journey of survival. So we have a hotline where we help victims directly. We also train prosecutors, attorneys, anybody who helps victims throughout the justice system. We interestingly got started by one of the first true crime really focused stories in the United States in the 80s. And a movie was made about our founders. There's a movie called Reversal of Fortune. It stars Glenn Close and Jeremy Irons. And actually, Jeremy Irons won his first Oscar for it. Yes. And it is, yeah. And it is about Sonny Von Bulow, who was the mother of our founders. And she was this beautiful princess and heiress. And Literal princess, not like someone who acted like a princess. No, she she was literally a princess. Our two founders are literally royalty in Austria. Wow. But her husband, who was a charlatan and a fraud and fake royalty, her second husband, her first husband was real. He attempted to kill her by putting her into a coma. And her children, when they were going through the justice system, realized that even as wealthy and as powerful as they were, the justice system was not set up to help victims. And what victims' families went through was just abhorrent. So they decided to put all of really their inheritance towards creating a better system for victims of crime. So they founded our center. That's amazing. And when we talk about victims of crime, it's any kind of crime. It's not just about a particular form of abuse or embezzlement or anything along those lines. No, we have made sure we stay what we call generalists. So we don't focus on any one crime type because we call it in the field poly victimization. After one crime, you're so much more likely to be the victim of several other crimes because they naturally follow. And you'll always need services for those other crimes as well. So we've remained generalists so we can help everybody because really it's about trauma. Yes. And there's simply not enough services available. I think that whole concept of trauma is something that is becoming a little bit more mainstream as far as its understanding of how deep it goes, how widespread the effects are. And it's so frequently misdiagnosed as being, you know, the manifestations of trauma end up going in all sorts of different directions. So thank goodness there are organizations like yours to help stave off all of that awfulness and help people who really do need the help. And by the way, yes, go ahead, say it one more time, the name of the movie for those who might want to check it out. It is The Reversal of Fortune. There's a book by Alan Dershowitz that was the best-selling book that the movie was based off of. So Reversal of Fortune for both of them. Interesting. All right. So now you have your your summer reading or fall reading or whenever you're listening to this, go when you're looking for something that's interesting, but 
based on history, based on the reality, true crime story, as you mentioned, for all you true crime junkies out there. All right. So with that, Renee, this is kind of a strange question given the nature of the work and the problem that you're solving, but what's your favorite part of your job and why? So I still do have a favorite part of my job, and it's when I get to see the impacts of both my small and large decisions. So we're working on a huge project in Maryland right now that I think is going to change the way we see criminal justice and victims once it launches. And getting to do that, that's my favorite part because I get to show up, I get a new energy from it. And the idea that what we're doing matters and might change something is just really motivating. That's beautiful. Now, in doing all of this, what's one of the big issues of the day? And how do you have to adjust your approach when you're talking to different key stakeholder groups about it? I think given what I do, everything leads to a lot of political opinions. And that's whether it's victims work, whether it's justice reform, whether it's gun reform. And my job is always to make sure that I'm serving victims. That's my number one job. And that includes, as you mentioned earlier, all victims. So I can't let my personal feelings come into it because every victim has to feel comfortable coming to me and coming to my organization because we have to be able to serve everybody. So the best example I can think of is using human-centered language and viewing the person in front of us as a person and not as the thing they've done. And this comes out a lot in criminal justice reform. So people often say felons, offenders, And what we try to do is we say justice-involved individuals or previously incarcerated persons. And that sounds very soft and very fuzzy almost. And it's like, oh, we're trying to make them feel better about it. But it's actually just forcing the listener to view the person in front of them or whoever's being spoken to as a person. It's just interesting that that's, I would imagine that there are some people who don't like that approach because if you're the the center that's advocating for the victims, but trying to work with the community at large at using more humanizing language for, I'll call it the offender, the perpetrator, the accused, Mm -hmm. as it were, then I would imagine you get some pushback on that. We do. And so that's why even paying attention to the language that is being used at any given time is crucial. So if I'm talking to a group of sexual assault victims, I'm not going to say, the justice-involved person that hurt you or the person that hurt you. I will say your offender, but it really depends on who you're speaking to. And it's it's using the right language where they feel comfortable talking to you. And that's a huge issue. How do you get your message across to somebody in a way that even if they don't want to hear what you're saying, that they are able to and don't tune you out? I think that's really mm-hmm. mission critical. Now, who is the toughest audience that you ever had to get through to? It would be my first team when I first became an executive director. I went into a small nonprofit organization and the staff was all significantly older than I was and they were entrenched. And to be fair, they had every reason to be entrenched. They had had 10 years of an ED who just didn't care about them. The building that I walked into, we were supposed to be a law firm. There were bats. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It smelled every day. I think there was mold. And so they had every reason to be entrenched, but they had... So when you say entrenched, just to be clear, entrenched to you means... They were dug in and just not ready to move. They had kind of burrowed themselves Emotionally, yeah, moved. They weren't willing to meet. Okay. And so I walked in with all of these ideas and we're going to change things and rah, rah, and we're helping people. And they just didn't want to. Not that they didn't want to help people, but even though things were so miserable, they didn't believe anything could get better and they were comfortable there. 
So they didn't want to get out of that comfort zone. And I will tell you, I had the senior most director under me tell everybody they should not listen to me and that I was not going to tell them how to practice law. And he and I had really a confrontation in front of everybody, which I tried desperately to avoid. And and he screamed at me, we'll do things my way or or I will quit. And I said, okay, you can go. There's the door. I'm not going to stop you. And so it was that audience because you can't move people when they don't want to be moved. Or I found I couldn't. And it took me probably a year of building up trust with them and being transparent, but also being consistent and acting and doing what I said I was going to do, even if they didn't like it, because there were times when they fought me on decisions I made. But even just following through with that, I think I did manage to get them to a better place, but it took a long moment. And how did your saying, well, there's the door, you know, don't let it hit you on the way out, kind of how did that moment impact your relationship with everybody else moving forward if it did? I think it at least showed them that that's part of the consistency, I think, or it led into my consistency and a show of consistency that we're going to do what I say we're going to do. I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. So you can trust me, but know my word is good. And so I think that started to actually build the trust with them. They didn't particularly like this senior leader. What a surprise. Yeah. They later confessed to me they were happy he was gone, but they were all very invested to see how the showdown went to see if I could be pushed and kind of jostled about. Good for you for standing up to him and not letting him push you around. Now, with all of this, what's an important lesson you learned when you went from being an individual contributor to leading your first team? I am a huge people pleaser. And that works great as an individual contributor. I mean, it works tremendously as an individual contributor. When I had a boss, my assignments were done on time. They were perfect. I didn't really question too much or anything that was outside of my job. And as a leader, that's bad. And I think we see that in that last example. You know, if I would have been a people pleaser with him, I would have stepped down, given him another chance, said, no, no, let's talk through this. And sometimes you just can't do that as a leader. And I still try to treat my staff with the utmost respect. They know that they are welcome to come to me. I love their ideas. I listen to their ideas. I need their ideas. But we've established a nice line where they're comfortable coming to me. They want to tell me things. I will take a lot of them. But at the end of the day, it's still on me to make the decision. Yes, yes. And how have you established that line? And I think that goes back to that transparency and consistency. With my team, I've really developed a rapport with them where they're giving me feedback. So I at least know where they stand, but they all also know at the end of the day, once I've made a decision, that's what we're going with. Renee, this brings us to our listener 24-hour influence challenge. So this is an opportunity for you to challenge our listeners directly to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today? I am going to challenge them and I'm cheating just a little bit. What they can do in 24 hours that I think would help a lot, would help all leaders, find one place to volunteer for at least two to three hours. And that's what you can do within the next 24 hours, but that you have to go into. It's not writing a check to, it's not showing up and dropping something off or donating a food basket for a raffle. Somewhere where you have to actually volunteer, one, to learn something new that you're not necessarily an expert in, but two, 
So you are meeting new people and getting new perspectives. I volunteer at a farm outside of Washington, D.C. I am the barn leader now. So I am in charge of a bunch of teenagers. And I've not spoken to teenagers since I was a teenager myself. And it was terrifying. But I had to learn to moderate my communication style to talk to them. And now I am somewhat comfortable with it. Teenagers will always scare me, but I'm somewhat comfortable (laughs) with them now. You learn. I think as leaders, I, I know I particularly did this. I got stuck in a bubble and I was surrounded by the same people who said the same things that I did and had the same beliefs. And when somebody didn't have my belief and they were outside of my bubble, I just didn't have to deal with them. Volunteering is a very safe way to hear other people's opinions. It's going to bring people in that you did not know thought in certain ways, and it teaches you to change your speaking style in a non-scary, non-confrontational way. Interesting perspective that volunteering teaches you to hear other people and to change your your communication style in a non-threatening, safe kind of way. What's something you realized you, how did you shift your communication style when working with those teenagers? So I realized that I like to teach for a reason and I like to learn for a reason. So if you tell me something a million times, I won't remember it. If you tell me why, I will remember it like that. So with teenagers, I am actually very good with horses, but teaching teenagers how to handle these 1200 pound animals um, and their safety is in your hands. It's terrifying. So it was talking to them. I could tell them 30 times that you always walk on the left side of the horse, explaining to them why, which is historical. And it was because there were knights and they didn't want to unsheath their sword and hit their horse is the reason you actually do it. And so I would tell them like fun little tidbits to hit home And I will say, I I wasn't sure if it would work, but they all started doing it. So I'd say, hey, we don't do this. Here's why. And as long as I gave them the why, they actually did it. It goes right back to Simon Sinek and all those other kinds of thought leaders who talk about the the need for the why. Focus on the why. If you understand the motivation, the, the purpose behind something, it just makes it so much easier. And when you think about it, how many times have we, whether it's at work or with our families, with our parents, when we were kids or anyone else, when someone tells us to do something, you go, why do I have to do that? That's our natural reflex, right? Is to say, oh, why? I don't want to, and I don't understand the value of it. So there's no motivation for me to do it. So change the reason or give me a reason for that matter. Mm -hmm. And it suddenly changes the persuasive power. I think that's terrific. Now, what's an example of a communications related mistake that you've made? And if you could have a do-over, what would it sound like? So this goes back to, I think, me being a people pleaser. I remember a very specific situation. I had a person who was a direct report to me. She was very high up and she just wasn't doing her job. And her team did not like her. Her team was struggling and I knew it. And I was watching her struggle. And instead of being direct and saying, you need to do this, and this is where I'm watching you fail, I couched it. And so not only was I not transparent to her because I was like, well, it would be better if you could do this, or I would like it more if you could do this, instead of just saying, you messed up here and you can't do that again, or this is why your team is struggling and you can't do it again. So not only was I not transparent, which really did hurt her in the long run, because she couldn't address it. I've learned that um, sometimes even when we think we're being gentle with certain language, we're actually being more offensive. So one of my team's favorite 
quotes was, this is a teaching moment. Let's have this teaching moment. And another team member finally said to that person, I don't need you to teach me. If I messed up, tell me, but stop saying this is a teaching moment because it's just patronizing. Yes. Almost sounds condescending at that point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can think of it as a teachable moment, but you don't need to frame it that way to everybody else. Right. Right. What's an approach you've used to address an accountability issue with somebody on the team? So my team, my whole staff knows that NCBC is the safest place in the world for them to make a mistake. I hire people because they have brains and I want them to think and I want them to be making decisions. And I'd rather them be making decisions without constantly asking why. So I know they've thought through things. That can be a double-edged sword. So if you then make a mistake, I'm going to talk to you about it, but it's going to be in that open, honest way. We just talk It'll be like, Hey, this was a mistake. You're not in trouble for it, but I want to know why you did it. And I want to understand your thought process. And as we were joking earlier, it's a nicer way of saying, what were you thinking? Yeah. Um, but it's also a very sincere way of saying, what were you thinking? Because I want to understand why you thought this was a good idea. So I can either agree and be like, Hey, that's a great thought process, but this is why it doesn't work in the long run. Or I can be like, oh, that was a mistake. We had one employee go on a national podcast, a very nationally well-known podcast, and he had not told me that he was going on this podcast. And I found out mid-live stream, and there were some really derogatory terms being used for a variety of populations. Mm. And so I was calling and I said, you know, get off the call, get off the call, get off the call. We can't be affiliated with this. We had to do a lot of last minute work behind the scenes to try to pull the call out because we could just not be affiliated with it. So when we sat down to debrief with him, I just said, I want to understand if you did the research into this person's podcast and understood their political views, why did you go on and why did you not tell communications? In fact, you hid it from our communications team, which tells me you didn't think it was a great idea, but I just want to understand why you did this. And I'll tell you, he freaked out. And that was the bigger lesson that he and I had to discuss. He exploded. And I don't know why you're attacking me. And I said, look, there's no attack. I'm telling you, you are not in trouble right now. Not yet, but keep going down that path. Yeah, this cannot continue. You made a mistake. We're allowed to make mistakes here. You're not in trouble yet, but if we keep going like this, you're going to be. And so that's how, and I think my whole team knows that now is if we're having a discussion about a mistake that was made, nobody's ever in trouble unless I find that I can't, and here's that word, coach you. If I can't coach you, then I can't trust you to be on my team anymore. So if you're not taking my feedback, if you're not, you know, at the end of the day, if you don't agree with me that it was a bad idea, or at least acknowledge that I'd like you to not do it again, I start to get nervous about you being on my team. Sure, because then you can't trust them to not right. go out and do something else that could hurt the organization right. in their own best exactly. interest. Was this person able to come down in with the adrenaline a little bit and acknowledge that perhaps they didn't make the best decision on multiple levels? He came down on the adrenaline. He acknowledged that he would not do it again. He still has not acknowledged a mistake was made, but we worked through it enough where I had faith that he would not do what he did again. Specifically, not telling you when accepting. Correct. At least, at the very least. Specifically, hiding it from our comms team. 
Yeah, yeah. If you're going to represent the organization, how much you let us know in advance? The comms team needs to know. I don't even need to know necessarily, but our comms team does. Yeah, sure. Obviously, you want to know what you're, who you're talking to, what you're talking about, all those. I would imagine they would want input. That seems to make sense. Yeah, that would have been an interesting conversation. And it's it's so funny how you, you mentioned those two framing differences because it goes to show how very small differences where semantically they seem almost identical that little lack of equality makes such a big difference where the difference between help me understand what you were thinking or why you thought X versus what were you thinking, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure was what you want to say, what most of us at some point or other desperately want to say, just, you know, hands up on the forehead, arms gesticulating. Uh What were you thinking? What is wrong with you? Why would you think this was a good idea? Help me. And the implication is, is you weren't thinking at all. Like, what were you thinking? Oh, I know you weren't thinking is the implied follow-up that's never said. With my team, I genuinely want to know what they were thinking because my hope is that they were. Of course. Um, And that it wasn't just a decision that we made because it seemed like a good time. So my hope is that they were thinking. So I've learned to have to ask it slightly differently. But that's the whole point, right? Is it the, the huge impact of, I believe you were thinking versus, I don't think you were thinking at all. Totally opposite implications from a slight framing switch in how you ask the question, help me understand what you were thinking when versus what were you thinking? Now, speaking of being in the digital world, as we move into the increasingly hybrid workplace, what's one of your main concerns or pet peeves? And what's your ideal solution? It's more of a pet peeve and it's over asking and almost over communicating in ways we wouldn't have. So I've noticed with a lot of my team members, So we've always had an open door policy and that is sincere and that is meant. And so when we were in office, people would knock on my door, come sit in for five minutes, run a question by me, or they would make sure they were in front of me and they'd say, hey, I have this list of things that we need to go over. I've noticed with my team, especially with their one-on-ones, they are slacking me all the time. They are pinging me all the time. They are texting me all the time. Slacking meaning for those who aren't familiar with the application, using the application Slack to send you quick text messages effectively on the computer or anywhere else? It is the office direct message. It's Google chats. Um, I'm trying to think of what it was before that, but it's office direct messaging. So they'll send me an instant message and they will do it every 10 minutes for one question. Hmm. And so I've even noticed in our one-on-ones where I've said, I want you to bring me an agenda because that used to be our time together. Our one-on-one, we had them once a week. It was a half an hour where they got to go down the whole list with me. And then we can make a holistic decision. With technology and with working from home, people aren't thinking, oh, I need to make this one interaction count. So I will get 30 texts, 30 slacks, you know, emails about basically the same question. So I think we're not being as deliberate in our communication. It can be just sort of reflex in as opposed to the in-head out-mouth blurt. It's the (laughs) in-head out-text Blurt. Yeah, it's so easy to type and text and you're not, you know, necessarily sitting there waiting for a reply. So it's like if somebody came into your office and blurted out a question to you, you would actually have a conversation about it. We can't have a conversation. So they're just blurting out questions. Right. So have you addressed this issue with them yet? So I have tried to go back to my team with the, you are asking me questions that you would not normally ask me. And you know that this is a safe place. So we've been working through that and that's gotten better. But I've also gone to my team and asked them to be focused on their one-on-ones and to send me an agenda with their top five. And 
I can't answer questions that aren't, you know, if something comes up, they all know I'm available, but we need a top five every week for this one-on-one. How to set boundaries. How yep. to set boundaries. And that is exactly it. And that's a challenge in, in the virtual workplace. And it was always a challenge for many when it was in person, but it just creates a whole new flavor of challenge mm-hmm. there. So, okay, how to set the boundaries safely. And now, I had a great boss. Before I was a nonprofit director, I had an amazing boss and we were not direct. And I knew with her, I had one hour every two weeks. And and it forces you to learn judgment too of what is an emergency and what is not. So I would bring my top five projects to her but we were in the privacy space. So you better believe if we had a breach of privacy, I was not waiting for that week to pop my head in her door. But I also knew if it was anything less than that, I didn't need to be popping my head in her door. You figure out the solution for yourself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You start thinking. Now, if somebody in the organization wanted to move up into a more senior leadership role, aside from their technical expertise, what's one skill they'd have to demonstrate to you and why? So we're hiring for a pretty senior person right now but still a direct report to me. And one of the key things I'm looking for is intergenerational communication skills and understanding. So some of my senior team has a very certain way that they like to work. They have a very certain ideas of how work should go. And my younger directors don't always agree with that. And so it's learning how to be a go-between and helping that communication along. I think that that is going to be a crucial skill. I don't know that we've ever seen such a difference in style in generations between kind of those who are in very senior positions right now and younger directors coming in. So much has changed more historically than we've ever seen change. So there's just such a completely different style that being able to navigate that is really a crucial skill. And it's funny how that becomes so much of a cultural shift in an organization, the mode and the means and the frequency, et cetera, with which you communicate, how, when, to whom, et cetera. And as Peter Drucker famously said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So is there another, or is this the big one? What's one communication pattern that has had a big cultural impact for you either now or in a prior organization, whether positive or negative on a team that you were on? I think it's now and the prior organization, and I think it's human nature, but that is to just keep venting and vent and vent and vent and look for people to get on your side instead of escalating an issue. Mm. So especially for, I think, old managers or people who are trying to learn how to move up, you've got to learn how to listen to your colleagues and know if a situation needs to be escalated. Or if they're just looking to vent, because I've watched so many times with teams where the venting just became toxic and you just had one person who is determined to be unhappy. But if you would ask that person, well, have you told senior management you don't like this? Or have you said anything to anybody? Are you just complaining to complain? A lot of times they're just complaining to complain and they want people on their team and on their side. And so one of the biggest things I look for in managers when they're learning to communicate is, do you bring that problem to me in a mature manner? That's not even necessarily saying, oh, they're just complaining, but in a way that's saying, hey, this is an issue that you're seeing or that I'm seeing. So this is an issue I'm seeing. You need to be aware of this, Renee, so that you can address it and address what the underlying issue is. I would imagine there are a lot of people in in any workspace who want to vent if there's a catharsis involved and they're looking for the validation, which is tells them that they're they're right 
everybody wants to feel right, that you're right to feel a certain way. And the irony that if they're venting, that's usually because there's some sort of a victim feeling at the moment mm-hmm. and that you are the National Center for Victims of Crime. Mm-hmm. And there's that woe is me, pity me, commiserate with me. Don't make me have to take any responsibility for this. It's just here's where life's not good for me. So how to shift that thinking. And look, that happens. And like, we all just have off days and we all vent. But I think we've got to be really careful that it's not becoming toxic and it's not becoming... Good example is at that previous job I talked about where we had bats in the building. I sold that building. I personally sold the building. I then did everything I could, found us and moved us into a brand new, beautiful building where everybody had an office. Everybody had a window. There were no bats. The carpet was new. The paint was new. They had redone it just for us. They found something to complain about in that (laughs) building. Like it smelled like paint when we first moved in. It was, and so sometimes I think as a leader too, with that communication, you have to learn. I've had to personally learn when it is just venting and when I need to let it go. And when it's something I do need to be aware of, and I do need to be concerned about and making changes. And that's a hard lesson, especially for a people pleaser. It's a hard lesson for a people pleaser. I would imagine that's a dangerous combination when you have a people pleaser on one hand with a natural complainer who's like the drama person, king, queen, jack, prince, duchess, mm-hmm. whatever title they want, who, who likes to find things to complain about, whether it's instinctive or for whatever reason. How do you stop the, the revolving door of that dynamic? And I will tell you, if any listeners have figured it out, please let me know because I, I, unfortunately, that is one thing I have not figured out. I will say I left the last organization and it was exactly what you described. And it's even worse when the leader is the people pleaser, because sometimes you're just pulling your hair out going, what else can I do to make you happy? And it's very hard to realize that their unhappiness isn't a result of your failings. Yes. And that's, it's not your job to make them happy. It's your job to provide right. them with a positive environment where, and to be supportive and to make sure they have the resources they need, et cetera, but not to make them happy. Correct. That is a, it, a really important line to draw. And it's so hard when you're first starting out as a leader. I think I've gotten better at it. Who knows? But when you're first starting out, it's so hard to know the difference. It's really hard to sense Am I doing what I need to do to create a positive work environment to make sure that people are doing their best? And is there actually something wrong? That's a skill that has to be developed. It's not innate. Nobody just knows how to do it, especially if you're a people pleaser. I mean, the opposite is that, and I don't think the opposite is any better, is that it's just my way or the highway and too bad if you're not happy. You know, there's got to be an in-between, but if you're on the in-between, it's very hard to, to learn that line. Well, and in between isn't necessarily a different line per se. It's recognizing which situations require which kind of attention that Mm -hmm. you can imagine. If there's literally bats flying through your building, that's a valid complaint. Every time a bat flies through, I would, I have to confess, I would probably find myself in an unhappy place at that moment. And oh, I was like, unhappy. I, I, I got attacked by one of the bats. We we had our federal funders on site. It was not a good meeting. I was leaving and a bat flew at my head. Later learned it was not personal. Their radar was <laughs> off and he was not flying at me. However, I was not happy that day. It was a valid complaint. I would imagine that. But then when people are going from that kind of decrepit building to otherwise a perfectly new overhauled place that's bat free and everything else, and now you're just going to complain 
because it smells like paint because they painted it for you, then this smell will dissipate over, you know, a little bit of time, hopefully. But nevertheless, that's they're, they're I think it can be easy to dismiss certain people's habitual behavior and say, oh, that's just, you know, Chris, that's just the way Chris is. And, but at what point does that create a trajectory and a gravitational pull with other people where people want Chris's validation. And so they start then taking on those habits so that they then sit and commiserate together. And that's where toxic culture, I think, can seep in on a, what appears to be a very innocent level, but just mm-hmm. create this, this really heavy anchor of a, of a culture within an organization. And that when a leader takes that attitude, then both people are in trouble. You know, if I take that attitude towards any of my staff, then I cannot hear that, you know, if Chris brings a valid criticism to me, and thank God I don't have any staff members named Chris, so good example. Um, You know, if Chris is just a complainer, and then he has a valid complaint and he brings it to me, I'm not listening. I'm like, you just like to complain. Please go away. So that hurts me because there's something I should be aware of that I'm now not aware of because I don't want to hear it. But it also hurts Chris because nobody's listening to him anymore either. It's the cry wolf. Mm-hmm. phenomenon. Exactly. Right? Just done it too many times. Oh my goodness. So with all of this, no more bats in the conversation in the buildings or otherwise, but Renee, tell us how more people can learn about you and the National uh, Center for Crime Victim, for Victims of Crime. I'm going to get this right. It's it kills such me. a mouthful. I still struggle sometimes. So the National Center for Victims of Crime is at victimsofcrime.org. We are also at Crime Victims Org on Twitter and on Instagram. And then I am on LinkedIn and Welcome Connections. And I'm also on Twitter and it's Renee from NCBC. And we'll put all of that in the show notes to make sure all those links are, are easy to click. And so no one has to pull over their cars or, or otherwise stop and open a note app someplace to jot it down. But thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. And um, what is the, the hotline number? Should someone who should otherwise reach out to you? If victims of crime are hearing this and they need help, go to victimconnect.org. They could call, chat, and text there. And there's a lot of really good information on there as well. So it's victimconnect.org. Victimconnect.org. So hopefully, we'd love to think no one out there needs the service, but sadly, inevitably, someone does. And so if you happen to be listening to this episode, please jot that down and, and know that it's in your back pocket. That resource is there for you at all times. Renee, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. As always, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet done so, so that you never miss an episode. And of course, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and your other favorite platforms of choice so we can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. 
the hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.